Great. Uh, okay. Uh, then I want to wish you all in the panel and, and in the audience, welcome to this session, 10 Facts About Inequality. My name is Maria Berggreinertsen. I'm a journalist in Morgenbladet, and I'm going to lead you through this discussion. Uh, uh, and, and I also want to say that this is uh, uh, this talk is arranged in collaboration with Coconomics and Norad. Uh, so I guess that means that Norad, for example, have paid the, the flights for <laughs> some of the <laughs> participants, <laughs> um, and hopefully my salary as well. Okay. Uh, the last ten years or so, uh, inequality have moved to the forefront of the political debate, both in Norway and in the rest of the, the, the developed world, at least. And um, that is much thanks to the research of Thomas Piketty. And he has given us a lot of <laughs> big volumes on, on uh, the different uh, findings, different uh, and on, on, on inequality and the rise of, and documented the rise of inequality. But what, what does all this research lead up to? Uh, that's we hope to find out uh, today. So we have uh, asked Lucas Chancel here. Uh, to, uh, he's the uh, he's a professor in economics and co-director of World Inequality Lab in Paris, where he works with Thomas Piketty among others. And then he's going to present ten facts about inequality. So Lucas, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, good morning, uh, everybody. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Um, and I realize actually I left a little um, um, thing to switch from slide to slide in my in my jacket that's uh, down there. And so if you don't mind, I'll just go and get it. <laughs> it's the best introduction I've ever had. Um, thank it's you very the much. the best possible start. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So um, let me start again. Um, all right. Um, so, again, very glad to be here, and actually um, this uh, presentation uh, starts from uh, a paper that was written two years back uh, entitled 10 Facts About Inequality in Advanced Economies. I changed the title here because I wanted to update this work with novel information and to try to make it a little more global so that we're not going to talk only about advanced uh, economies. Um, but here is the original structure of this paper, which you can find um, online, and it's also published in a MIT Press volume edited uh, by uh, Danny Roderick and Olivier Blanchard. And you have several contributions about inequality scholars that contributed to this book. Um, what I wanted to start with today, I'm not going to go uh, through all these facts. I wanted to select a few of them in order to, to, to have time to discuss them. And the first one is that, as paradoxical as it may sound, inequality data remains scarce. We live in a data-abandoned world. Information is everywhere. Uh, some actors of the global economy know uh, more or less everything about our daily lives. But governments still struggle to track income and wealth precisely because of the opacity of the financial system, because some actors do not necessarily have an interest in sharing information. We've been discussing this yesterday when we're talking about tax evasion, for instance. And because also um, 
for some time uh, of how uh, economic research was designed and set up. And there has been a disregard, so to say, for empirical evidence in economics for decades. This has been changing over the past 10 years or so, but um, I, I think there's still quite some progress to be made. And this is what we're, we're trying to do with this network of 100 researchers affiliated to the World Inequality Lab. We're trying to uh, gather, collect, harmonize inequality information all over the world in developing countries and in rich countries to make comparable statistics. And we think this is so important because currently there is a gap. And you know, governments publish every year GDP numbers. We've all heard about GDP numbers, GDP growth. But only very few governments in the world produce the inequality GDP numbers. That is to say, how much the bottom 10% of the population has grown over a year, how much the middle class is growing over a year, and how much the wealthy class is gaining from this GDP growth. We do not have this information from public actors, and so that's why we actually are working with them to try to build this information to publish it. And eventually, we would like to stop doing this work, and we would like that government do that, and that's our overarching objective. But so far, it's researchers who do this, exactly how GDP was created. Initially, GDP numbers were produced by researchers. Then the United Nations uh, got, in the, uh, got in the game in the early 1950s. One of the first things that the United Nations did in 1953 was to agree on this standard of concepts and rules to track the economy. And so now we want to operate the same thing when it comes to inequality. Sorry for this long introduction, but I think it's so key to what we're discussing afterwards. This is what you can find online on our um, inequality database. So that's inequality information for each and every country in the world. And we're constantly um, updating and uh, augmenting this set of information. And this slide just tells you a little more about the organization of this network, over 100 researchers um, located on different continents, and we're working with international organizations. We're working with the OECD or the World Bank and other partner institutions to produce this data, to analyze it, to understand where inequality comes from, and also to help design solutions to inequality. All right, um, so what have we found? How much time do I have left? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say... Uh... Ten minutes. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Okay, so what we found is um, this historical decline in inequality between um, 1900 and uh, the 1970s in um, a large set of countries in advanced economies, but also in many uh, emerging economies, and this return of inequality, this rise of inequality. So here you have the share of income captured by the top 1%. Um, in a fully unequal society, this share would be 100% by definition. And in a fully equal society, this share would be 1% by definition. And you see that there are quite large variations uh, over the 20th century. In Europe, this share is around 20% at the beginning of the 20th century. It drops to uh, less than 10% and has been rising since the 1980s. So this, on this graph, we had Europe and the US. I'm, added other, I'm adding other countries on the picture here. And um, 
I'll just step forward to, yeah, just to see actually what I'm talking about. Um, and so we um, are here adding China and Russia. And what you see on, 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 these, um, on these set of graphs is that this rise that we observe since the 1980s has happened at different speeds. Um, without uh, too much of a surprise, Russia was the most equal country on this set of, of countries in uh, up to uh, the late 1980s. But what's pretty striking is the speed at which inequality has risen after the fall of communism. So it moves from the most equal country to the most unequal country on earth almost in um, a set of just five to ten years. And that's a very specific trajectory. The point I'm trying to make here is that these different trajectories followed by countries are very informative. They also tell us that, yes, there ha has been a broad rise in inequality, but that this rise is also largely due to different policy choices. Sometimes this rise is extreme, sometimes it's more contained, and so there are policies behind. It's not a fatality, this rise, or this extreme rise of inequality. And this is pretty evident this is pretty uh, visible when you compare, for instance, the United States and Europe. The United States is on the left, Europe is on the right of this picture, and now you have two indicators of inequality. The share of income captured by the top 1%, so the same as we were seeing before, and another indicator, which is the share of income captured by the poorest half of the population, here in blue. And what you see is, in the US, you have this complete almost complete reversal of the relative positions of the two groups. In Europe, you do not see this pattern. You see a slight increase in the share of income captured by the very rich, but the bottom 50% uh, manages to keep a relatively fair amount of total income. And these are regions that are fairly comparable in terms of size, in terms of level of development, in terms of exposure to globalization, and in terms of access to new technologies. So we cannot say that, you know, this strong increase in inequality is due to globalization or only to globalization or only to technological change. There are other factors, other things that play here. And these other, other things is what we look at extensively in a lot of the research we do, and this is indeed related to tax policies. This is indeed related to educational policies. This is also um, related to how you regulate or not your labor markets. So this is what is going to explain these strong differences. It's not a matter of fatality or economic determinism, as it has often been said when talking about inequality. Um, I'll skip the next few slides in the interest of time. All this is in the paper, and I would now like to move on to uh, the global picture. So we've looked at countries or regions, Y by one, in the previous uh, pictures. Now I would like to show you inequality at the world level. So looking at the world as if it was one country and looking at the inequality between the citizens of this big country, uh, that is the world. And what you see here is income inequality on the left and wealth inequality on the right. That's the share, in, in blue, I have the share of income captured by the top 10% of the population. The richest 10% capture about half of all incomes on Earth. The richest 10% also capture about three quarters of all wealth there is. 
So wealth inequality is more unequally distributed than income inequality. Wealth is what you own. Income is what you earn. So income is a flow. Wealth is a stock. And it is much uh, more unequally distributed. In terms of what accrues to the bottom 50% of the population, you see that the poorest 50% of the world population captures less than 10% of all incomes and just 2% of all wealth. And what has been the evolution? I'll focus a little uh, on the evolution over the past decades and over 200 years. This graph shows the evolution of the gap between the rich and the poor, expressed as how many times do the rich earn more than the poor? By the rich here, I mean the top 10% and the poor, I mean the bottom half of the world population. Today, the rich earn about 40 times more than the poor. Around 90,000 euros earned per year for the top 10% of the population and around 2,500 euros per year for the poorest half of the population. And I guess to get to Norwegian Krona, you multiply these by 10, right? Um, and so what we see is this gap of about 40 today. This gap has been declining since 20 years. That's the positive side of globalization. The less positive side of globalization is that um, we're still at a gap that is pretty high. In fact, this value of around 40 between rich and poor is the same as the one that was observed in the early 20th century at the peak of Western imperialism. So progress has been made thanks to the reduction of average income levels between, say, China and Europe, but there's still quite a bit that we can do. And this is what I'm trying to show on this information, on this graph, where I show the two components of global inequality. The first component is inequality between countries. So on average, China is poorer than the US. But there's another component here which is very important. It's inequality within countries. There are rich people in China and poor people in the US and poor people in Europe. This is what you see on this graph. And I think what's important to observe here is the orange line. The orange line shows that average income differences have been declining between countries since the 2000s. But another process was at stake, and that's the, right of the, uh, the rise of inequality within countries. That's what I was showing at the beginning of this presentation, which has been rising quite a bit. That's the blue line, and this blue line is now reaching historical highs almost. So today, a very large part of global inequality is not differences between countries, but it's what matters within countries. And one of the key consequences of that is just focusing on increasing average GDP growth is not sufficient if you want to reduce poverty in a lot of developing countries. You need to focus more on the distribution of, of this growth. Which group is going to capture this average GDP growth? And in the interest of time, because I understand <laughs> I'm close to the end. You're very disciplined. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll just say one word on climate change because I was asked mm. to do so. So, as a discipline um, <laughs> speaker, I'm just <laughs> adding, I'm adding these slides show, so to I the think. initial presentation. But this global inequality in terms of income and wealth is also related to many forms of other types of inequalities. And one of them is environmental inequalities. In fact, climate change, we've been used to seeing it as an issue between rich and poor countries. Rich countries pollute, poor countries are impacted by pollution. That's true, but that's not the end of the story. In fact, there are also high polluters in poor countries and low polluters in rich countries. And that's one of the consequences of what I was presenting before. Because strong economic inequality means that some people will pollute much more than others and that other people will have much smaller carbon footprints. And just one number on that, the bottom half of the world population contributes to just 10% of the problem and the richest 10% of the population contribute to about half of the climate change problem. And again, this is not a just, just a poor versus rich country issue. There are rich emitters in low-income countries, and the reverse is true. Just one final slide. That's the U.S., and that's the average emissions levels between, by income group in the U.S. And you see this strong inequality. These are tons of carbon emitted per year. On average, around 20 tons emitted by American every year. And... Well, the low-income group here emit just 10 tons per year, 75 tons for the top of the distribution. This has implications when we think about climate policies. When you are thinking about or designing climate policies, it's not the same thing to implement a, a carbon tax, for instance, in a society where everybody emits the same level of carbon Versus society where a lot of very rich people emit a lot of carbon and they actually won't really care to pay a carbon tax because they have uh, the capabilities to do so. And the low-income groups will have much more difficulties to pay it and it will also be less effective because they have less emissions. And so the conclusion here is that if we really want to address these important challenges such as climate change, we also need to address, to tackle the, the large level of inequalities between countries, but also within countries. And I will stop here, and all these slides will be available online. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you uh, for a great presentation, and thank you for the discipline. The reason for that is that we have a great panel left today that I want to give some time to this uh, so they can discuss this with you. And uh, then we have on my far right, your far left, Kalle Mone, professor in economics and founder of ESOP, Center for Equality, Social Organization and Performance. Uh, we have Katarina Bu, advisor on development policy and international financial structures in Agenda, the social democratic think tank in Norway. And we have here Boyd Vega Soliel, uh, director general of NORAD, the Norwegian Development Agency. And I think we can start with you, Katarina. Uh, you have just done a report on inequality during the pandemic. And uh, you've seen on, and, and the fact that the pandemic had on inequality in developing and middle income countries. So 
How does your findings there align with the findings uh, Lucas Chancel presented for us here? Um, first, I would like to say that uh, I very much agree with Luca on the matter of data and the importance of data. Uh, and when we talk about developing countries, data is even more scarce than what we see in, in emerging and advanced economies. Uh, if you look at the pandemic, for example, many countries doesn't even uh, have data on, on affected people or people hospitalized. Um, and interestingly, uh, um, when you look at inequality data, uh, they are so more difficult to actually get politicians <laughs> to um, be uh, concerned about at the same um, level as they are concerned about poverty numbers. And we saw this when the Sustainable Development Goals were negotiated in 2015, that there was a lot of pushback from especially rich countries to have a target on inequality. So which it is much more comfortable to talk about poverty and poverty numbers, because when you start talking about inequality numbers, uh, then you talk about redistribution and power and actually uh, redistributing money from the rich to the poor. So when I did this report, uh, that was one year into the pandemic, and it was something that Agenda did together with Norwegian People's Aid. Um, so we looked at the numbers, which was first and foremost estimates, because we do not have the correct numbers about inequality, about poverty, about almost nothing when it comes to the pandemic. That will be shown in the years to come. Um, but what we could see that was was that the estimates uh, very much aligned with uh, Lucas' number, and when we very many people, economists and others, said that uh, inequality is about to rise within countries, um, most likely also between the richest and the poorest in the world. We see that some of the very, very richest in the world actually gained a lot during the pandemic, especially the owners of big tech companies, uh, big food companies, um, and obviously the pharmaceutical industries. Uh, some of them doubled their fortune in just one year. Uh, while in poorer countries and developing countries, we saw that there are particular some groups, um, women, informal sector, uh, because the informal sector were very much uh, hit by the pandemic, uh, children, because they were losing out of education, uh, many of them are still not back, uh, many of them are losing out of uh, regular vaccination programs because of the pandemic, um, and also migrant workers were losing very much. And this aligned with, because we did a lot of interviews with Norwegian People's Aid Partners, and they could tell these stories from the ground. This is what is happening. So it wasn't only on the top um, estimates, but also on the ground. Interestingly, some recent studies also might indicate that the inequality between countries that Luca talked about, which has been falling uh, quite a lot, especially from 2000, and, or I think about 34% from 1990 to 2017, might now be rising, the inequality between countries due to the pandemic. And that is quite interestingly, because uh, in previous crises, that has not happened. Then inequality between countries has also fallen. Um, and that is, of course, due to vaccines and vaccines distribution, but also because many of the poor countries now have very, very high level of debt um, in their countries. Some of these issues might, we might come back to. Yes, yeah, so fact number 11, inequality between countries is back. Uh, Kalla, Mona, uh, in your research you have, among other things, focused on uh, the institutions fostering not inequality but equality. And how does your findings here align with uh, the story that we heard now? 
I think Luca. very very much uh, uh, align uh, with these uh, findings. I, I met Luca for the first mm. time yesterday, and since we know our close friends, uh, <laughs> I can also feel free to uh, to to be open in in respect and sort of having more critical nuances yes. to. Uh, so I no, think uh, it's uh, I. Um, so the, foc the focus on 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 I call it the Paris project. Mm. Uh, that is very much uh, sort of a lot of descriptions. Mm. And uh, it's a very concentration because it was initially an historical project, so they concentrate on on actually inequality as concentration, the concentration of income in the top, and, and being a little bit less interested in how the rest of the income distribution, the shape of that. And of course, when we talk about the, this part of the world and developing uh, countries, poor countries, and so on, then it's uh, that. The 99% of the population is very interesting. It's interesting what kind of earnings they have, how their lives uh, perform, and, and so on. That's not so well captured by the project. And the, the reason why they concentrate so much on that is historical data only had numbers for for uh, the top incomes because they were only they were the only who paid taxes uh, at that time. And basically, taxes uh, tax income is the is the source of of, uh, of the database. So, so I think uh, Luca agreed to this. I hope at least uh, that it's sort of enriching, uh, <laughs> enriching, uh, enriching the sort of the study by sort of more the interplay for them. So we live in a part of the world where we have very American-style income distribution between the one percent richest and the rest. That's just like in the U.S. Here, twenty-three percent of the of income in in Norway goes to the one percent richest. 99% uh, of the population share the rest of the income much more equally than in most other countries. And there are specific reasons for that, or how they are or institutions, for example, unions, welfare states, and how these interact. And, and I think it's, it is important for more progress in the Paris uh, project uh, to sort of take more into to this both uh, um, explanations for inequality and sort of go back and forth between explanations and measurement. It's a little bit, so far, there's uh, been huge progress in, in, in this Paris project. The, 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 a huge project is the collection of new data that nobody knew beforehand. And, and But now I think further progress is to sort of enrich it a little bit more by more theoretical speculations, see things that can be wrong. Because there's some descriptions can never be wrong, but you have to, to understand the thing, then you have to be precise enough to be wrong. Take me right on this, that it is, you have to say something that could possibly not be true, and, and, uh, and then, then we can learn something, and that will be a guide to, uh, to sort of having better policies for, for uh, uh, reducing inequality or get rid of it. Then you have to widen up the perspective. The entire income distribution is uh, of interest, not only the top income shares. I will also say Hello, one I more. Stop you there one, can you, you, can you, very, you can just finish my question? You have a very good question now for Luca. <laughs> can, can you just finish my question? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Fast. I, I think, for example, there's an emphasis in, in Luca's talk, and this is the question mm -hmm. to end. That uh, there's a focus on sort of what the public sector or the government can do, but in many parts of the developing world, the, the public sector or the government is part of the problem. It's not part of the solution. And if I take Middle East, the, the Gulf states, the most inegalitarian parts of the world. Of course, the state and the government and the, they are the problem. There's not the solution there. 
So, and that's true for many other countries as well. So this is, I think, more pers perspectives into that, I think, is important, both for rich and poor countries. Okay, then you can answer. Thank you. So I'll answer my, my friend, Carla. Um, <laughs> um, and um, I'll say that um, what, um, it, it's uh, perfectly right mm -hmm. that, you know, the origin of this project is looking at tax information, focusing on the very top of the distribution to produce these long-run series. Um, and because we were ourselves not satisfied with just looking at the very rich, we've really expanded this project. And now what you can see online on the database is really information on what Carla was saying that we need. So uh, the, the bottom 10%, the next 10%, you know, the, the working class, the middle class. So we have this information for all countries. And for instance, in Norway, we have uh, this simulator. You can put your income and you will see where you fit in the distribution within your own country. So I think this is really something that we've been working hard to develop over the past few years. And on the question of what to do about that, you know, I very much agree that um, we need more analysis, more policy proposals, but there are two projects here. One is really making the facts right. Our objective is not to make everybody agree on what's the right level of inequality. Uh, this will never happen that uh, someone has the perfect answer to that. This is a matter of public deliberation, of public debate. And uh, in order to have these public debates, we believe that this data, this information is a public good and it is a necessary element to have these discussions. Um, you can, can answer that, but, uh, but I think I want to introduce uh, what I got in the, in the conversation as, as well. And then, of course, the word is free for, for everybody. Uh, because you, you don't just do this to, to have an enlightened conversation, as I understand. You also do it because you want to come with some positive pro policy proposals there, what, what to do. And, which of these facts do you think is most relevant to the work of Nordal? Well, uh, I think this body of work that Luca and others have done and has emerged is quite <coughs> important for the work we do with international development or aid as it is often called here in Norway. Um, because traditionally international development has been mostly concerned with inequalities between countries, right? And the idea of development came from the fact that some countries were extremely rich and could share a little bit of that wealth. And the UN, we agree that the countries should share 0.7 at least to the poor countries. That was, that was kind of the idea behind the whole thing. Then, like we've seen, I mean, the, uh, inequality between countries is still uh, an issue and maybe even rising now, like Kantarina said. But still, there's been an immense change, especially in big middle-income countries, right? Like China or Indonesia, Brazil, where a lot of people who were uh, um, earlier really poor have, have climbed up the ladder. I mean, China, the, the, the level of extreme poverty in China in 1990 was higher than it was in Africa, which is, it's almost impossible to understand today. It's a huge change. Still important, but though, but inequality within countries have not traditionally been a, a, a huge issue in the, in the work we do in, in development, in, in aid agencies. And that is, that's a huge problem, uh, actually. Uh, both because like we saw here, 
inequality within countries is often much more of a problem uh, and much bigger in developing countries. Uh, and also because we traditionally work with governments, but the governments and the institutions are often part of the problem, like uh, Kalle is touching on. And we have, in, in, from Norway's side and others, we have started taking this into account, but not enough. And, and, and that's why, and, and also in the new government in Norway's platform, they've said that they want to put inequality and also inequality within countries more at the heart of development policy. And we are very, from a technical uh, 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 perspective, we are very glad to do that. And, and just, just to say a few words about what it is, uh, uh, just keywords, getting more data is really important. Get, getting the numbers right, just actually publishing in, getting more transparency, and that's why we are also discussing entering into a partnership with the, the World Inequality Lab. Secondly, of course, the multilateral work, uh, uh, regulation, uh, international agreements, all that. And, and the third thing is working directly on institutions with country. Uh, and in Norway, in Nura, we have a program called Tax for Development, which is our main vehicle to do that, where we cooperate with countries on, on getting their tax systems better, their numbers better, uh, doing, giving advice on institutions and, and other things. Great. Um, Kalle, uh, this is something that I know you have worked on as well. You even you made an index of <laughs> how, how inequality uh, within countries, uh, inequality. You can maybe say some, uh, some words uh, about that. <laughs> just one word, but it, it's not so important here. But that, that's an index that mm. captures how, um, how unnecessary poverty is in different countries uh, in the sense that you put in perspective the amount of mm. poor people or the the share of poor people or the population mm. you have relative to the income in the country. In the region, we mm. call it Gini year index because it's, it sounds like Gini and it's, uh, and it's, it is a kind of miserly development, uh, a measure of that. And then we rank countries and we see how they change over time and so on. And surprisingly, for example, uh, South Africa is, uh, is the most uh, miserly country in the world. The country that we all loved because they should have a progressive Black majority government. Uh, it's, uh, but also, if you consider the whole world, the whole world is equally miserly as South Africa towards the poor in the whole world. So if you, you can do this on different aggregation levels. So I'm just going to have one remark mm. to, to, to Bovega. I, th I think uh, that one, one reason why uh, the Norwegian development aid and, and also maybe some other uh, development, but particularly in Norway, is that they have actually, <laughs> it sounds a little bit stupid, but they have recruited too few economists. I don't think they should have only economists, but they should have a little bit more. And uh, because in development, inequality have been within countries have been a central thing since the 1950s. And, and, and it is the, the agency that should sort of be responsible for, for, for a rather generous uh, foreign assistance program as, as well as that, should have more people that can also be part of the discussion. There needs more criticism within the, the agency on these issues. And I think the same is true for foreign, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They have no, almost no economists. I mean, the visitors come from abroad, from the World Bank. Then they call upon us from the university to come down because they, they want to have somebody to talk with. And this is a structural <laughs> problem, I, 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 I really think. And it is, I think it is, it is 
because many uh, politicians and and left wing uh, uh, social scientists have a have a wrong perception of economists that they are right wingers they don't care about these things and very often they don't check why you come and ask we can see what we can offer <laughs> okay. we, 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 can we have a position now open color <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I can apply for that maybe. So. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, but but uh, yes, uh, Katarina. Uh, yes, I know that one of uh, Khaled's former very good students work in Nordad, uh, so uh, I'm sure he's taking this, his advice so with him. Um, I would also like to make the point that um, uh, I'm, I'm very glad to hear Borvegar uh, is now working on this, and of course it comes from the, also the new government platform, uh, because only a few years ago when uh, we tried to, to raise this issue in Norway about uh, talking more about inequality and development policies. Uh, the answer from the Norwegian um, agency uh, and others where we cannot do everything. Uh, but now this is actually a key issue and I'm very glad to hear that. However, I want to also make the point, and unfortunately there are no politicians here in the panel, but there are also a lot we can do. He both, speaks to the politicians. <laughs> yeah, both uh, nationally, but also internationally, that doesn't cost money. Because Bordvega is in charge of the aid, half of the aid budget. And of course, that is, uh, you can do good things about that. He mentioned tax for development, but also social welfare systems and, and cash transfers to the poor, which has uh, showed in, in a lot of research that is very effectful. However, there are a lot of issues that doesn't cost money. And that is obviously about uh, curbing illicit financial flows. Uh, there are, and the very new Pandora papers really showed that uh, and all the former revelations also that uh, this is the key issue if you actually want to tax wealth within countries and and with the Pandora papers we really see that uh, rich people uh, politicians prime ministers former uh, heads of state they have no no respect for the for the state they live in no respect of of uh, the rules and regulations uh, and this needs to be curbed and also there are now very interesting discuss discussions internationally on uh, unitary taxation on multinational companies uh, and a more inclusive tax systems. However, some of the issue here is that some of the rules and regulations come from the OECD, which has done a lot of very, very good work. However, the OECD is first and foremost an organization for the rich countries and the poor countries don't have a seat there. Uh, although they have been included in the process. Uh, so a lot of people argue that the UN should take a larger position on this. And in the gov new government platform, the government has actually proposed that uh, they should they will work for a convention on uh, tax and transparency. Uh, however, they do not say that this convention should be within the UN, but it will be interesting to see where they where they put that. So there are lots of issues that we can do uh, diplomatically and politically. Uh, that doesn't necessarily cost aid money. Look at you, you nod. And according to you, your 10 facts, in a way, it's simple because you can tax the rich and you can use the money on uh, education and health services and other things for the bottom 50%. <laughs> so what stands in the way? I wouldn't say it's simple. <laughs> um, but I would say it's definitely part of the necessary package of solutions. And I just wanted to... Uh, Bring one example here, the case of Brazil, that was mentioned by Bovega, um, where you have this positive story, where you have this government that uh, develops these um, cash transfers to low-income households called Bolsa Familia, investments in education, access to health, and some transfers, so money given to low-income households. Uh, 
And this contributes to reduce uh, both uh, inequalities in uh, living standards and also increases access to the labor market to families that were not educated before. But how do you finance that? And there's, the, there's where the tax discussion comes in and why it's so critical. The Brazilian government financed these programs, massive programs, essentially by taxing the middle class. The top 1% of the Brazilian population was left uh, relatively untouched by these policies because that was part of the program of the deal when the uh, Workers' Party came into power. And so when you look at who gained from 10 years of growth in Brazil uh, between when the work Workers' Party comes to power and when uh, it leaves power, you have good gains at the bottom of the distribution, you have a loss for the middle class, and you have huge gains at the very top because there was no fundamental change in the structure of the tax system, of the land system, and of the, the property system in general. And so what can this create? It can fr create frustration, resentment, and possibly political backlash situations like the one that we're seeing in Brazil. So that's why I'm saying that if we want to do these investments to the bottom, well, we need progressive taxation and progressive financing. So if there's one thing that aid agencies can do in developing countries, it's really helping structuring tax systems. And that's why I think it's so important to have these discussions. Traditionally, aid agencies have not done that a lot. No, uh, it's always good to be able to say that actually we, we do both these things, even though we have too few economists in, in, uh, in uh, Norad. But uh, we um, uh, advising and, and, and working on the structure of tax systems, it, uh, we also consider that a, a really cost-efficient and, and a good investment also because it could be really transformational and, and, and bring a lot of income. And, and like Katarina said, uh, cash transfers is, are extremely uh, important, especially in a crisis situation like now. They have grown now, both uh, financed from con poor countries themselves and, and also from donors. And, and we, from Norad side, we have advised the ministry to do more. And, and, and we are very glad to see that it's increasing in the budget now. We want to do more of that because we, also because it could be, you know, a bridge to some kind of welfare-like institution in, in many countries. Just a few words also about this dilemma. Why, why, did, why have we worked so little uh, in uh, inequality within countries and why is it important? I mean, I, I, I take your uh, point on economists. I, th I think actually we recruited two people with a PhD in economics <laughs> just recently. So we're trying. But I don't think it's the full answer. My, when I meet colleagues, my impression is that this is a structural problem. It, it, this is typical of many aid agencies and, and policies of Western countries. I don't think it's better in Denmark or France or, or, or UK, the UK. Might be worse. I, I, I may be worse. Mm. I think it's mostly also, also political. That the idea, the original idea of aid was to, you know, to help the poor, to reach out to, to poor. So we started, we measured how poor people were, uh, how they, they did. We didn't measure the, the relationship between the rich or the poor or how strong the institutions were. So we kind of, we, th that was the idea behind the whole. And, and like Katarina said, many rich countries have been a bit reluctant also to internationalize inequality. It's, it's better to keep it within your domestic policy. 
Uh, I, I consider it really important because we now know that reducing inequality can also add to growth and add to reducing poverty and another of uh, the goals we are working with. And also because we know that it has to do with the kind of institutions you have uh, in the in a, in a countries we are working with. So, so putting it at the heart of policymaking from a donor perspective, we think it will, it will be good to reduce inequality. We, have, we also think it will affect, for instance, our ability to, to reduce extreme poverty. I think it's some honor also to Heike Holmos. When, when he started as he, he was I a minister. I always try to give him honor. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're I close friends and, and you come from the same political party. So I, I, but he started, he started to introduce uh, inequality things uh, and also spoke about in international meetings of, uh, as a minister. I think he did a good job. You said that uh, all... Uh, uh, all similar agencies are same. I think uh, DIFIL in England is a little bit, uh, have been a little bit more focused on, uh, on inequality and also on uh, economic and social explanations in general. They've been more sort of theory oriented combined with, uh, because they saw that they, they were just, there was so little light to what, what they were doing. So that's why, why they did two more things. The in, we're talking about what to do in, in developing countries. Of course, we, we can't, they have to develop themselves, but, but you can, we can be friends and talk. Uh, they just give you two facts. Social policies are very effective in development context, and extremely effective, uh, underappreciated, because everybody think it is, you have to have huge growth and so on. India, how many do you think pay income taxes in India? Less than 2% of the population pay income taxes. Of course, they pay sales taxes. But it, the whole agriculture sector is exempted from uh, paying uh, taxes. From a long uh, struggle for, for the landowner, many super rich people in the agriculture sector, no taxes paid. And it's, 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 it's accepted in India, so to speak, that, that they shouldn't pay taxes. This should be contrasted with one recent social project that we have studying in Bihar. Bihar is the poorest uh, uh, local state in in, uh, in Brazil. It, it has Brazil in uh, India, sorry, uh, and it is it has huge uh, discrimination of, of girls. Uh, keep them at home until they are ready for marriage. No school, very little schooling of girls. I have half the intake, uh, income of uh, the average of, of Indian states and a lot of poverty. Then he introduced, in 2006, introduced this uh, program on bicycling to all girls that started in, in ninth grade in school. I know it's gone many years, so we studied the effect of that program. You can stop schooling the day after and just take the bike and go. Mm -hmm. But they don't. They, they continue schooling. I mean, it's a signal to or the worth of women in general and girls in general. But what we, we have, we have a huge project in, in studying these, these things, uh, in cooperation with, uh, uh, one Indian uh, woman that we have worked with for a long time. And so what we find is not only that these, Girls became become impoverished, but also their mothers. 
So the, the, the girls become role models for, for, for their mothers. And we can study how they can go more walk alone without uh, a male following them, how, what kind of decisions they make in the local, in the local homes and so on. These things are hugely progressive and, and you need detailed studies to understand these things. It's not, you, you wouldn't see it immediately on the poverty indexes or things, but you enrich people's lives. And that's what the whole thing is about. Yes. Uh Sorry, Katarina, I see your, I, I see your finger, but, uh, but I just think we have to move on because I want to use the last 10 minutes here for, for your climate report, uh, Luca, because, uh, uh, the numbers you presented for us here today, there was, at least for me, a little bit surprising because we talk a lot about, uh, uh, the problem of getting China on board when it comes to climate policy. And we have seen the demonstrations, for example, the Yellow Wests in France that were protesting and, the hikes in, in few taxes. Uh, and here you come along and say that, well, it's actually the rich and not the poor that stands to lose from climate policy, don't you? Yes, um, I, I, I think that, you know, if you look at the example of the Yellow Vests mm. movement in France, where you have part of the population, mostly from, you know, the bottom half of the population, mm. uh, that basically says we don't want this kind of climate policy mm. because it's too unfair. Uh, and that eventually leads to the abandon of this policy and with uh, a situation where a lot of people are uh, not supporting more climate policies anymore because they feel that this is in opposition with their living standards. This really is a dead end. If we continue in this direction, we will not be able to solve the climate problem and it will create more and more frustration within society and uh, accentuate the divides within societies. So really, this is the example of what not to do. And what was done, actually, well, that's a situation where the government implements a carbon tax. Um, many people who do not have a choice between using their car or not using their car, because there's no alternative, have to use their car to go to work. So they have to pay the tax. And these are low-income people. And you have high-income people living in cities that can take the metro or just pay the tax because they have a lot of uh, extra savings every month. And so they don't really care about this tax. And this, you know, this creates this first gap, this first divide. And on top of this, a part of the revenues of the tax were actually used to finance tax cuts for the wealthy in France. So if you have these two components, you understand why it's going to easily fail. Now, some countries have done it much better. Uh, in Canada, for instance, British Columbia, that's a, a state, uh, a region where there's a lot of oil and gas. They implemented a carbon tax in 2008, and they used the money of this tax to send checks to low-income and middle-income households. And guess what? It's working. <laughs> so the point is, there are very different ways to do the green transitions. There are very different ways to have these policies, and it's not just about taxation. It's also about regulation. Think about regulation of SUVs, for instance, or activities that you know are associated with a lot of carbon. And some will be more or less inequality enhancing. Some will be more or less equality uh, supporting. And that really is what we need to think about. And we have not been doing this kind of inequality reality check enough over the past years. Bottom line, I think that if we want to accelerate the transition, we need much more redistribution from those who have the ability to cope with this transition and those who do not have this ability today in rich countries and in low-income countries too. Comments? 
Well, um, yeah. Yes, I agree. And, and it's also very much about communication and how it is communi communicated from politicians, because if these things becomes very uh, complicated on how tax is distributed and uh, or um, and, and, and people doesn't actually feel it. Uh, so it is also part of communication issue for for politicians. And uh, and I would, would just like to echo since now it's the Glasgow meeting, much more uh, has to be done at home in rich countries. Uh, and it relates to his uh, paper on, on inequality between countries. Uh, the numbers are so big when it comes to uh, CO2 emissions from a rich person uh, to a poor person. Uh, and Norway obviously has to do more cuts at home. Uh, but also the international global inequality issue is also important. And for the Glasgow meeting, everyone is talking about how rich countries must um, uh, give more climate finance. And uh, we have not reached a goal. We are uh, not aligned with the Paris Agreement from 2015. Uh, the Prime Minister said yesterday that he wants to increase to 7 billion Norwegian kroner in, in five years. Um, an estimate from the Norwegian church aids show that we should spend 65 billion Norwegian kroner um, within 2030. So that is one aid budget, one and a half aid budget. Um, and uh, that is also an issue because uh, if we are spending the aid budget, which Port Vega is in charge of, to a lot of which is now going to health, education, a lot of these issues, and we are taking that for climate finance, um, that was not what we agreed in 2015. We said it would be additional money. So if we are taking the aid money uh, from poor countries and use it for climate finance, that will be a big, big issue. So, um, yeah, let's see what comes out next week. We'll see. Bye, bye, No, <clears throat> to me, this is, uh, this is really interesting. Maybe to me, the most interesting part of, of what I've seen from you've done also because it's a bit new to me. I, I like I told you, I read uh, a book you've written on sustainable inequalities mm -hmm. about this relationship between inequality and carbon. And it shows, I mean, the, and then I'm touching a bit mm -hmm. on domestic policy. I'm, like, you know, I'm totally politically neutral in, as a civil <laughs> servant, but, but at least I can say that it's, it should be really interesting for dom domestic <laughs> policy. I mean, it shows that inequality is is a climate issue also it it matters and second that there the how you do climate policy has a, a, a you know matters a lot and that uh, that making just transition as everyone is talking about into concrete policies is possible and necessary mm. but also from a development perspective this is interesting because many of you know the poorest countries in the world they hardly met anything but many middle-income countries are large emitters now. Uh, uh, Asian uh, countries, Brazil, Indonesia, others. Many of them have fossil fuel subsidies, right? It's a big part of the problem, something that could be solved. Many think it's a, it's a bit, it's, it's a bit like in, in Europe. Many people think it goes to the poor. A lot of it is our subsidies to the richest people who actually own cars and, and, and planes and so on. But, and of course, getting the data out, but also finding ways of changing the policies and spending money to, or uh, as in ways that are good for, um, uh, for fighting climate change, but also to fight inequality can be really important for them. So I think this is an extremely important agenda. 
Yes. Uh, I, I have one question uh, for you. Okay. Uh, so take your, a, we, we take you your are comment. The, you are the boss. So <laughs> right, we, take uh, your, we take your comment. Okay. <laughs> I, you're just going to remind me that there's sort of mm -hmm. 60 or almost 70% mm -hmm. of the top one polluters mm -hmm. in the world live in North America. Mm -hmm. So the problem is really rich countries. Uh, in addition, we, we should be not sending over oil companies around the world to plunder the resources in non-democracies before the population living in these countries uh, have a say or in a share in, the, in whatever benefits. We are polluting at the same time that we are robbing and we are proud of it. I, I think it's really a, a bad thing. And the last thing to say that all these debates should be much more geared also towards... Uh, uh, disarmament. You, you waste so much resources. Think about all these resources you put in there, and they pollute a lot uh, armaments all over the world. But it's, it's, we, are, we are not allowed to talk about it. it, it it's really dangerous, because the, 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 it's dangerous of the, 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 the climate or the debate, that there are some things you are allowed to say, and some things you are not allowed to say. Arm, arms race in the world have gone up since the 1980s. Of course, it is part of the environmental problem and, and sustainability of, of the world, but it's left out. And uh, we have even a, a person who argued that every country should spend 2% of the GDP on, uh, on armament. I, I think it's really bad. Yes. Uh, I think we're reaching to the end of our time budget here today, but just uh, to, to sum up, uh, Luca, with a comment on, on the last thing Kalle said here, because in the last... Uh, 20 years, I think we have got a lot of facts on inequality on the table. We have discussed some of them here today, and we see that they will change. So probably will also change policy. They already changed the policies in the Norwegian Development Agency, no doubt. So, uh, but uh, look, looking forward, uh, do you see any like black holes? What did you, what do you want to know more about <laughs> when it comes to, to inequality? Perhaps two points to that. Mm -hmm. uh, first, uh, a ray of light in this discussion. Uh, you know, factoring in inequality in development uh, strategies means that we can do much better and much faster. And I think that's really important to have in mind. Uh, if growth had been better distributed in the developing world over the past 20 years, there would have been much more uh, reduction of extreme poverty. And so... This really means, that's very interesting, because this means that with relatively lower GDP growth rate, on average, you can just have more people out of extreme poverty if you're really targeting the right segments of the population. I think this is really key and critical for the discussion. And what I would like to see more, well, I would like to see more uh, climate policies, as I was saying before, that really tell us which group is going to be impacted and which group is not going to be impacted. And if the groups impacted are the low-income groups, how much compensation, how much money are we uh, getting in order to compensate them, to help them uh, in their abilities to adapt to, to this transition? If we don't do that, I think we're really um, going to fail this, uh, this green transition. Thank you. Okay, uh, we end here on this upbeat note. We're going to <laughs> fail this transition if we don't do <laughs> <laughs> more research and change of politics pulses and i want to thank you here uh in uh, in the panel for for this which i think has been a very at least for me enlightening discussion on this theme so i 
want to take, thank you for coming here, even when it's sun outside and you maybe wanted to go there, <laughs> uh, be there in the sun as well. Uh, thank you for, for listening. We didn't have some time for questions today. So I'm sorry for that, but uh, you had so <laughs> much interesting to tell us. So I thought we could drop that. And I hope to see more of you on the rest of Coconomics. And that's the end of it. <laughs>